Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, it's the second episode of our five-episode infrastructure series that we're in the process of rolling out to you. This series is brought to you by Red Vector and Dan Foss, who I'll tell you a little bit more about in a moment. In this episode, I talk with Professor Bilal Ayub. He's a PhD a professional engineer, a distinguished member of ASCE, and we talk about how climate change is affecting infrastructure. And this was a very interesting episode to me as a civil engineer. Of course, I had the opportunity to actually do the interview, but the content of it was really interesting in really hearing Dr. Ayub talk about how we can't base future designs on past weather patterns anymore because they're not predictable. And so he dove into this concept of adaptive design which he is actually helping to implement through his work at ASCE as well as at the University of Maryland. So it's really interesting. I'm really excited to bring this series to you just because we've had so many emails and questions just about infrastructure and there's so many things in the news about infrastructure. I hope you're enjoying it. And if you're interested in other series in the future, feel free to reach out to us through the engineeringmanagementinstitute.org website and we can try to do more series. I know that there's so many different disciplines we can go into in civil engineering. Before we get into the main segment of our show with Dr. Ayub, I want to recognize our sponsors for this episode and for this infrastructure series, Red Vector and Dan Foss. Firstly, I'm happy to welcome a new sponsor of the Civil Engineering Podcast, Red Vector. Red Vector, a Vector Solutions brand, is a leading provider of online continuing education and performance support solutions for the architecture, engineering, construction, and facilities management fields. When you train with Red Vector, you'll be in good company with the other industry-leading organizations and professionals who have chosen to reduce risk, ensure compliance, hone skills, and meet their CE or PDH requirements. More on Red Vector later on in the episode. Now, let me take a moment to tell you about Danfoss. Danfoss is a company that is focused on building the sustainable communities of the future. They dream up and manufacture a lot of the solutions that go into all kinds of different infrastructure systems. They call it engineering tomorrow. As we've been discussing here on the show, we need smarter infrastructure solutions to support urban centers as they grow. Danfoss has a project that is all about that, and I'll tell you a little more about it later in the show. To bring us into the interview with our guest, I'd like to introduce him more formally just so you get to know a little bit more about his background. Dr. Ayub is a University of Maryland professor of civil and environmental engineering. His main research interests are risk, uncertainty, decisions, and systems applied to civil, mechanical, infrastructure, energy, defense, and maritime fields. Dr. Ayub is a distinguished member of ASCE and a fellow of the Society for Risk Analysis, Structural Engineering Institute, ASME, and the Society of Naval Architects and Marine Engineers. He has authored and co-authored more than 600 publications, including eight textbooks, 
and 14 edited books. He is also the editor-in-chief of the ASCE ASME Journal of Risk and Uncertainty in Engineered Systems. Now it's time to jump into today's Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Dr. Bilal Ayub. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now I'm excited to welcome Dr. Bilal Ayub, who is a University of Maryland professor of civil and environmental engineering onto the Civil Engineering Podcast. Bilal, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to join the podcast. Bilal, I contacted you because I've came across you quite a bit in terms of your different expertise, which I introduced a little earlier in the episode. And in this series, we're talking specifically about infrastructure. And obviously, it's a pretty hot topic these days. It is a source of concern for us in the U.S. and beyond, of course. Things are starting to get older and there's failures. And one of the things that I wanted to talk with you a little bit about is climate change and how that poses a risk to infrastructure. So before we get into that, could you maybe just, in your own words, introduce yourself for our audience and tell them a little bit about your background and your expertise? I'm a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Maryland, and I direct its center for technology and systems management. My areas of interest and expertise are in risk analysis, uncertainty quantification, for decision-making. And I have dealt over the years with different types of infrastructure, spanning uh, civil engineering, such as dams, navigation locks, bridges, mechanical engineering systems, such as uh, commercial nuclear power plants, refineries, uh, maritime systems, including flood walls, as well as natural and nature-based infrastructure, such as uh, dunes and barrier islands, and so on. Let's get into this topic, which is, I know, a pretty deep one. It's not something we're going to cover everything today on, but I at least want to talk about it with our listeners. So we know that we have a problem with infrastructure. We've seen it. We've seen ASCE's report card of how bad the infrastructure here is in the country. And sure, we're going to try to rebuild it. And there's a lot of hopes that they'll be rebuilding, funding, et cetera. But the bottom line is, is that, and you deal with risk, these climate change, there's definitely different climate changing patterns, however much you believe in it or not, that climate change will pose a a risk going forward, regardless of what we do with the infrastructure. So first of all, can you talk a little bit about this idea of risk mitigation in general for our listeners? If you're looking at something in terms of risk for a system, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking at? When we examine the risk for a system, we try to answer a few questions. The first one is what can go wrong? What are the scenarios and the conditions where the system will not perform or possibly fail, including catastrophic failures? The second question is what are the consequences and and the impact of such failures? And the next one, what can be done about them? And in that case, what we do is we'll come up with a strategy for either reducing the chances of having a failure or reducing the impact. And those decision strategies come with varied costs. So the question becomes, which one of the decision strategies will give us the most cost-efficient solution? So there is an integral part of the process is economic analysis to determine what should be done. But to sum it up, there are really three questions. What can go wrong? What's the likelihood that it will happen? 
what are the consequences and what can be done about them. So that being said, I would think that in a perfect world, if you're designing new infrastructure, you're going to think about climate change and the risks that it poses when you do your design. But obviously, we have a lot of infrastructure that's existing, and there's now threats posed because of the changing climate patterns. How have you gotten involved? Or maybe you can talk a little bit about how you would assess an existing piece of infrastructure against potential climate change concerns because of changing climate. I think making having the separation between existing and new infrastructure is certainly a logical way to proceed. Now, when it comes to an existing infrastructure, the options will be limited compared to designing a new one. So, the uh, when it comes to an existing infrastructure, the logical you know options will be protection, uh, perhaps changes in the use of the infrastructure, uh, changes in the design if it makes financial sense, because always we have the option of uh, demolishing and rebuilding. And then the economics has to be brought in to figure out which solution will end up being as a better utilization of the resources available. So the number of options are somewhat less than what we have when we are dealing with a new infrastructure. Is this something that is being done on a regular basis? I don't know if you can speak to this, but in general, in terms of our infrastructure, let's just say in the United States, is there anything that you can share with us in terms of, is this something that the government would be doing on a regular basis in terms of going through pinpointing certain points of existing infrastructure that are more susceptible to climate change than others and then going through a process? Yes, this is done by the government, the various governments. For example, the Army Corps of Engineers, they looked at dams and levees to determine which ones should be top priority for enhancement. There has been examinations of any flood protections that are in existence to determine at which areas of those flood protections where we should increase the height of the protection against flooding. Other considerations, communities such as in town here, Georgetown, they are enhancing the flooding protection focusing more on a nuisance flooding, which happens often, and it's tied almost uh, with the season. So there has been efforts across not only governments, but communities and so on. I know, for example, in the Washington area, one of the vulnerable sections of Washington, D.C. is the Federal Triangle, which is near the Reagan Building. And there has been you know, efforts and studies by D.C. government to enhance a drainage system, the biggest risk in there is extreme precipitation that could flood that area. And we have that limited drainage capacity. So the government basically has several options that they are exploring for uh, mitigating that risk. In terms of whether it's an existing piece of infrastructure or something that's being proposed, you're pretty much going to go through the same risk analysis that you provided us in terms of the questions and the consequences. However, you'll probably have, there'll probably be more options potentially with something that's new because with existing, like you said, you have to look at what's there. Maybe there's a potential different use. I mean, you could always redesign it, but that's just going to be very costly. That's correct. I think the process itself stays the same, but the number of options or strategies at the very end will become maybe smaller. That will limit what can be done in the case of an existing infrastructure. 
Now, Bilal, let's talk about climate change because you have an expertise in risk and you talk to us a little bit about risk assessment. But how do you analyze the risk associated with something as variable as climate change? That's a very good question. I mean, first of all, let me start by stating that we have been observing record-breaking temperatures and ice-melting rates and events and storms and droughts, wildfires, other extreme events such as extreme precipitation, similar to what we saw in Houston last year. All of these are strong indicators that there is something which is changing. And all of us in studies that were done by uh, the academies and others to determine attribution, the most likely reason behind this is the changing climate, our changing climate. Uh, now, how can we deal with it? The type of uncertainty in this case is sometimes we refer to it as deep uncertainty, meaning that it is not your typical stochastic or random variability that we have dealt with in the past and engineers dealt with it effectively. So we characterize, for example, what is the variability in wind speed? What's the variability in ocean waves and coastal areas, waves and coastal areas and so on? So by understanding that variability, we introduce adequate margins of safety to ensure that the risk is to an acceptable level. Now, in this case, in the case of a changing climate, we are not dealing with a stationary process, meaning the past might, is not a sufficient source of data for projecting the future. So we have to utilize the information from the past, but also we have to rely on climate models to give us the projections and the interactions among the different variables that will result into a loading process, whether it's wind or waves and so on, that will be changing in the future. In the past, this wasn't the case. The history, it's a good representation of the future. This is not the case anymore, and we call it non-stationary process. And the way we deal with it is by looking at various projections. And the projection is different than prediction. A projection, we try to determine how would it really look like in the future. But the future is highly uncertain, and the reason, uh, because all of this is tied to the human development, what type of fuel we'll be using, uh, the population, where the population will end up, you know, uh, settling. Uh, the, the, there is tendencies for uh, urbanization, so uh, the cities will become much bigger, and the cities are located in coastal areas, so we have bigger inventory of assets that will be closer in the coastal areas. And this will increase the potential loss if there is an event. So there are dynamics that are between consumption by people, the behavior of people, the environment where people live and so on, the asset inventory and the increase in it. All of this will feed in each other. The fuel type and the emissions and so on will end up affecting the climate and the climate in turn will give us the storms that will affect the population, which is growing and settling more in cities closer to coastal lines. So the interaction is they feed in each other. So there's a lot of complexity. And as a, as a result, the projections will become harder. But we have the tools for it. There are models where significant level of resources were spent on those models by NASA and NOAA and so on. And they perform for us the projection. So what we need to do is just basically use those global models 
downscale them so that they are applicable at the locations where the asset or the infrastructure is being examined, and then characterize the uncertainty. And if we find in the future, if we build, let's say, a new infrastructure, and we'll find in the future that what we assumed is not totally accurate, we need to have the ability to adapt our design, which means changing it without really demolishing and starting all over from scratch. So there is a design philosophy which is emerging where people refer to it as adaptive design. Adaptive design basically will enable or part of the design features, part of the infrastructure will be attributes or features that will enable changing the design, adding to it, and so on, without redoing it. I'd like to take a moment here again, and I'd like to thank our climate change episode sponsor, Red Vector. The team at Red Vector believes knowledge is the most powerful tool available for helping people enrich their lives and meet their professional goals. Red Vector's industry-leading online library includes more than 1,500 engaging accredited courses developed to meet your continuing education requirements and enhance critical skills. Keep pace with an ever-evolving industry. Train with Red Vector. To find out more about Red Vector continuing education, visit www.redvector.com. At one point in time, the use of historical weather climate data was sufficient in doing these types of designs. And then at some point in time, it was no longer sufficient because of, I guess, of the rapid changes of the climate change. And therefore, it now is based on projections rather than historical data. Who decides that that needs to change? Is that one of these agencies that says, well, this is no longer good. We need to start basing it on projections. Well, I mean, it's coming from various parties, I'll say, to this in this area. For example, you have owners who are starting to realize, well, climate is changing. And if I'm going to spend, you know, X dollars, that infrastructure will be with us for 100 or 200 years. I want to make sure that this asset is actually designed to account for these future projections. So owners sometimes are demanding it and they are putting it as a part of the design requirements of infrastructure. And we are seeing this. We are seeing it, in fact, after Sandy, the governments of New Jersey and New York, they are having the language that, you know, these, uh, if there is a request for bids, they will have one of the requirements that should account for a changing climate. So this is from the design of, from the side of the owner. Now from the engineering community, the engineering community, they realize that there is a strong evidence that this is happening from the scientific community. And hence we have to change our practice. So there is internally within the engineering community, there are efforts to basically change the practice, the ongoing practices to account for a changing climate. But I can tell you the market and the demands of the market are maybe a step ahead of the engineering community. That, you know, you have governments who are asking for accounting for a changing climate and the engineering community, we don't have standards and guides for this. So they are improvising. They are coming up with, uh, with ways to account for it which is consistent with the way we train our engineers. I'm an educator, and all of we know, we train our engineers to be well-versed in the fundamentals, whether it's physics and math and so on, and they should always have the ability to basically deal with situations that they did not encounter in the textbook. So it's part of the training, it's continuous learning processes and so on. 
So they are facing this emerging need by owner to address it by improvising, basically. But the engineering community, including the American Society of Civil Engineers, they have ongoing efforts to uh, come up with guides and standards. But this process takes time. In fact, we undertook in ASTE part of the efforts of the Committee on Adaptation to a Changing Climate. We undertook a project, it's all volunteer work, to uh, prepare what's called climate resilience infrastructure, a manual of practice for adaptive design and risk management. And that document is impressed now, and it should be coming out in the early fall. And it was a, a one-year project. I mean, it was uh, We have about 10 people who worked extensively, devoted a lot of time to get such, that document out of the uh, basically realization that there is a strong need for it. And the team that prepared it included people from government, from the private sector, as well as uh, academic institutions. Wow, that's all really interesting. And thanks to you and to the other volunteers on that committee for doing such important work. I'm sure it's a lot of time on all of your parts. And so basically what it sounds like to me is that when you're thinking about how you can mitigate some of the risks for the unknowns of climate change in infrastructure, this adaptive design is really a way to do that, which is essentially your design is adaptive and flexible and changing based on the different computations and the risks that you're getting from these models as they're changing. And so it seems like a pretty good way to deal with it because like you said, it is unknown, but these the data and the tools that have been invested in have created some kind of a resource that will help us to do this. And now it's, I guess, on these engineering firms that are doing the designs for the infrastructures to utilize these resources. And that, that was my next question for you is that Where in the design process does someone like you, maybe not specifically you, but someone who's and has an expertise in this risk assessment, how do they usually get involved if I'm assuming not every engineering firm that designs these infrastructures have these people on staff? Maybe they do. But in order to really be able to provide adaptive design, I would assume that you need to have people that have knowledge in this area that know how to use these tools and these resources. Is that sometimes what you get? people reach out to you for? Yes, sometimes I do. And this happened in the past over many cases. Uh, For example, after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the government, the Army Corps, and so on reached out to me to lead the risk model development effort. And we've done that. And it was, uh, and it met the needs of the government and the Department of the Army awarded the team. Our team was quite sizable. The medal for public service. So this is uh, regularly done, not just for me, but for others. So there are, you know, the expertise, we have the national capacity in terms of expertise to provide that and to do that. The minute we define the direction and the way forward, and that was the purpose of this document, we tried to define, you know, to offer another option for dealing with this complex situation, which is the option of adaptive design. It becomes another tool available among the other, uh, you know, the existing ones to basically design infrastructure to account for a changing climate. The other thing I'd like to point out in here is that the U.S. places slightly more than $1 trillion. These are the numbers in 2017 worth of infrastructure systems. We have slightly more than $1 trillion in construction, in built infrastructure per year 
and the design lives of those, they typically from 50 to 100 years. So, I mean, if you add up how much we are investing, one trillion, slightly above one trillion, right? Every year, it's a significant sum of money. And I, I can tell you, I can assure you even, most of them, the significant number are not designed to account for a changing climate. And they don't have these features of adaptive design and none of them. So we are putting in on the ground, and this is not counting existing ones. I mean, this is just new. And uh, so basically, we are really making a major, big mistake, I'll say, in not pushing harder, stronger to consider a changing climate in our design. I mean, we'll pay the price uh, significantly in the future. The World Bank, for example, is engaged in an effort, recent effort, to create incentives. This is not in the U.S., but for developing countries, where they will fund the increment to change a design which is in the plans to be built from a regular design to a climate-resilient design. And they are willing to fund that delta, that increase in cost, because they see the value. They see tremendous value in it. So that investment will become insignificant in the scheme of things. And even it will change the market dynamics, because the minute know-how is out there, the engineering workplace or like anything else, it's competitive. So other companies would like to learn how to do that. And quickly, that increase in cost to go from, let's say, regular design to climate resilient design, that cost will disappear just by the market dynamic. Technologies will be invented and ways of doing it will be made more efficient because there is a demand for it. So I think, you know, creating those incentives could change behavior of people. People mean in this case, could be, you know, design firms and owners and so on. That's really eye-opening when you talk about some of the numbers in terms of a trillion dollars and large amount of that not being climate resilient. So this committee that you referred to and the, the guidelines or the, the documentation that's coming out of that committee, do you think that this is a first step towards trying to have some kind of a guideline? I mean, can there ever be some kind of a guideline on this in terms of designs that have to go through a certain process when they do these projects? Like, how can we move towards more climate resilient design? I'm guessing that this is what the committee was, that's what the goal is. Yes. I mean, to answer your question, I'll say the document that we produce, it's called the Manual of Practice, and it's designed to be generic to cover any type of infrastructure and so on. We, we have examples in it. We look at bridges. And one of the examples we highlight in there based on the works of others that were published in a paper, basically a coastal, let's say there is a coastal roadway that is on piers and it's designed so that the piers are up to a certain height because there are potential waves and flooding and so on. So one way of accounting for adaptive design is to make the foundation system oversized. So in the future, if we decided, well, those waves and the extreme waves and the flooding is becoming much bigger than what we designed it for, we could elevate, we could actually insert, you know, sections to make the piers taller, but without removing the foundation and building a new foundation uh, system, and we could raise it higher and higher. This is a concept of adaptive design. So in that case, what will happen, the owner is actually paying for an oversized foundation. And there is the potential that oversized foundation will be never used. In other words, you know, maybe our estimates will be what we designed it for would be fine. The behavior of fuel consumption and uh, the size of fuel and the emissions and so on were under control and countries reached agreements to determine to control the level of emissions. And hence, there is no need to elevate it 
and what we put in the ground as an oversized foundation will be an amount that different will be an amount which was lost. Right? But this is one potential outcome. The other potential outcome that we will need it. And in that case, it's available to us. That type of thinking, it falls in a category of decision-making criteria called low regret criterion. So what I try to do in here is minimize, basically, we try to minimize the regret and reach that low regret level. Another way of characterizing it, people refer to it as real options, that I want to create the option of those foundations can carry, you know, higher, the added weight of the tiers and higher elevation, which could create, you know, bigger eccentricities and so on. So I'd like to provide in the ground the option of increasing the elevation. And this comes at a cost, that option. But also that option becomes, it's a real option, which means it has a market value. So an owner who has those features, although it's paid more and there is a risk that they might not use those features, they might demand a larger price for their system if the infrastructure is sold from one entity to another. I mean, the infrastructure could be, in this case, private-public infrastructure. So the economic, the valuation of the infrastructure will become higher as a result of having those features, although those features, they come with the rest that we might not call on them. It's good to hear that things like this are happening and that people are starting to incorporate these into their design and they're going through this decision-making process. And we can only be hopeful that with the work that Dr. Ayub is doing, it will continue to become more and more common in the world today. And again, we're talking with Dr. Bilal Ayub, who is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Maryland. And we've talked quite a bit today about how you can assess the risk and possibly mitigate the risk of something so variable as climate change. And we talked a lot about adaptive design, and we will link to whatever information we could provide you with in this episode. And kind of just to wrap this up, and I'm, I'm going to ask Dr. Ayub to stick around for a minute in our CE Hot Seat segment. We're going to ask him a couple of questions about his career. But I just want to come back to the beginning before we do that. Just remember the questions that Dr. Ayub gave us in terms of risk assessment, which was what can go wrong? What are the likelihood that this would happen? What are the consequences? And what can we do about it? And so just keep those questions in mind when you're thinking about risk and assessing risk. And I hope that those of you out there that are involved in infrastructure projects will look into this adaptive design that has been introduced here that he's spoken about on the podcast episode here that he's done a lot of work with other volunteers have as well. All right, so we'll be back in a minute here to wrap this up with our CE Hot Seat segment. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our CE Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Dan Foss. Did you know that by the year 2050, 2.4 billion more people will live in cities? That's going to present a lot of challenges for those of us that work in engineering. As you're hearing in this interview with Dr. Ayub, we need to build better, smarter infrastructure to support such a significant population increase in urban cities. Danfoss has made it their mission to help pave the way for the communities of tomorrow. They have been developing solutions that make a difference for the past 85 years, and their latest innovations are showcased in a project called Danfoss City. You can go to the fully interactive Danfoss City website right now and see their solutions in action. Smart energy systems, efficient buildings, raising construction sites, are just a couple of areas where you can experience how Danfoss 
is part of the sustainable development of strong infrastructure. Go see for yourself at city.danfoss.com. You can also find the link in the show notes for this episode. Okay, Bilal, first question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunchtime routine, something that you do consistently on a daily basis that contributes to your success as a professional? I mean, I tend to find myself to be more inclined or I'd like to do writing in the morning. I have a clear mind and I could maybe put my thoughts in an orderly fashion and so on in the morning as opposed to in the afternoon and the evening. So I tend to devote the morning for uh, writing and more creative activities. And that typically is followed by with meetings with my graduate students. The mid-afternoon all the way to lunchtime will be all you know meetings with students. And then in between uh, afternoon, I uh, typically I like to schedule my uh, classes in the early to mid-afternoon. What is one book that you might recommend to engineers, whether it's your students on a regular basis, or maybe just one book that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional and personal development? In engineering and in professional development, understanding risk is really important. Any decision situation that's complex in nature, if you ask yourself, why is it really that complex? And you'll find it's because of uncertainty. I mean, all of this link to uncertainty. Either we cannot take that decision situation and put it in an orderly fashion, and we cannot maybe quantify the parameters and their interactions and so on. So uncertainty is a major item. And the way we deal with uncertainty, the practical way, is through risk analysis. So risk analysis is basically the tools, the applications in order to deal with uncertainty. Now, if the decision situation is not orderly and complex, systems modeling becomes key. And risk analysis cannot be done without the context of a systems model. I advise, you know, engineers who are dealing with uh, problems with some complexity that could go maybe sometimes beyond the simple designs and so on. The use of systems thinking and risk analysis will be quite helpful. I have my book on risk analysis in engineering and economics, which is uh, quite useful in that regard. And it starts from uncertainty analysis and systems modeling, and then it tries to answer the questions that we discussed earlier. What can go wrong, the likelihood, the consequences, what can be done about these issues? Okay, that's great. And I think that risk analysis is something that not enough civil engineers have been educated on or or talked to about. So I think it's great that you talk to your students about it. And I think that it's something that all of you out there listening should try to learn more about. I mean, it can only help us as civil engineers to understand risk because it's pretty fundamental in everything we do. So it's maybe something to think about a little bit more. All right. I've got one final question, Bilal, and that we call the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? I'll give them an advice about communication. That's so important. And maybe two items. I'll say. One is communication, whether it's oral or written. I mean, I found based on my experience in uh, working with not only students, but even in, within the engineering community as a consultant, and leading different projects and so on, that the communication skills, they tend to be, in general, I'll say they are uh, below average than maybe other professions and so on. So communication is extremely important, especially written communication. 
the writing has to be appealing to the reader and informative and easy to, uh, to read, communicates the concept in an effective fashion, depending on the audience group where that we are targeting. So communication is key. The second item is ethics and value. And I think we have overall, I'll say maybe engineers, they tend to be on the other side of the spectrum, I'll say compared to other professions and so on. But still, that is fundamental in nature. Because we have the life and the well-being of you know people and society and so on, it's all tied to the type of decisions that we make. Okay, and I just actually want to ask you one more question as on a follow-up to that question, because you obviously have an expertise in a very specific area. And often I talk to civil engineers and they're deciding on whether or not to build an expertise in a very specific niche, because there's a lot of niches in the world of civil engineering that you could go into. And I'm just Wondering if you could share from your experience how your development of an expertise in your niche has helped you or has made your career fulfilling, or how would you reflect on your career in terms of how has that added to your career, focusing on one in a couple of areas specifically? The guiding strategy for me has been adding value and making a difference. A good starting point is to answer the following question. What are the issues facing our society? And then based on that, establish basically uh, a, a career that will help uh, to deal with those issues. I can give you an example based on my career. I started to have interest in adaptation to a changing climate and designing for a changing climate. And it was basically, you know, based on my readings and reports in the media and the journal media, as well as technical papers and so on, Mostly in the, on the scientific side. I mean, this, it was led by scientists, whether it's NOAA and NASA and so on. So I thought, well, I mean, this is, we have a problem in it. And engineers, they have to do something about it. So I started to pursue that area in unfunded fashion. I mean, you know, in academic institutions, we try to basically get our activities funded through grants and contracts. But that activity was unfunded. And I engaged uh, some of the bright minds, our undergraduates, students at the University of Maryland, and I recruited a couple of students to work in this area, and we examined the impact of a changing water level in the Washington metropolitan area as a case. We published a paper that was in 2012, and that paper, when it came out, the timing was favorable to us. It came out a few days before Superstorm Sandy, but as a result, it was picked up by 300 media outlets. I mean, it was picked up by all the media outlets, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. I mean, the rest was so long. <laughs> none of my war, none of them, which were funded and so on, received that level of attention. But you see, the, the starting point was being relevant and making an impact. And sometimes we have to move and be ahead of the crowd. So, And it all should be driven, really, in adding value. And things will follow, whether it's... Uh, the recognition, the contracts, the awards, all of that, I think, will follow. Always, I think, we have to be relevant and add value. I mean, I can say another example. I was uh, I was reading in the Washington Post about a subcommittee, congressional subcommittee. They were going to have hearings about an agency, a government agency, and it deals with some design and so on, an engineering problem, not civil engineering, some some other field. And and I thought, ah, well, there is an opportunity in here. I could see some value in using risk methods by that agency to deal with that decision situation. It was obvious that they were dealing with some complexity in there. So I contacted the agency and immediately, I mean, they, I, I sent an email to the head of the agency, to the head of the office in that agency, 
and the response that I got back, when can you meet? That's the issue that will be consuming them. I mean, they will be, they have to go and to uh, and offer, respond to a congressional subcommittee. Uh, so I think being relevant and addressing needs and providing the value is really key to success. And that just goes to show you is that once you have a goal like that and you're very clear on it, you can keep your eyes open like you did in the post and you can see things where you can add the value and where you might be of assistance as long as you start to understand what your craft is and what you're good at. So that's great. Bilal, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. You've given us some really interesting information here about adaptive design, some career advice, and we just want to thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us here. Anthony, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Before we wrap up this episode, I just want to remind you that at the Engineering Management Institute, we have several different ways that we provide training to help engineering professionals become more effective managers and powerful leaders. Not only do we have our Engineering Management Accelerator online workshop for both corporations and for individuals, which can be found at engineer2manager.com, but we also do custom training. What do I mean by that? If you're a civil engineering company and you're interested in helping your managers to be more effective in dealing with people and doing the other things that managers have to do that we don't learn in school, we can come in to your firm and do an engineering management training needs assessment where we can assess where the skill gaps might be currently for your managers and also how they like to learn. And then we could take that information and build a program for you that's very custom or potentially give you some solutions that we already have, like our Engineering Management Accelerator online workshop. So if you're interested in learning more about how we can help you, feel free to contact our offices at 201-857-2384. That's 201-857-2384. And remember, you can find the show notes for today's episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 87. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 